0: I'll invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to Hebrews chapter 12. We've been going through the book of Hebrews forever, and it uh, seems like it anyway to me. And uh, we've made our way into the middle part of uh, the 12th chapter of Hebrews. We have uh, discussed a lot of different things. Uh, uh, it would probably do us well to go back and recap just a little bit without uh, taking too much time away from the uh, progress we want, want to make tonight. The theme of the book of Hebrews is... Uh, the excellence of Christianity over Judaism, the superiority of, of uh, Christianity. Uh, the author of the book of Hebrews is not identified, but uh, the best evidence that we have is that it was written by the Apostle Paul. It's certainly the Apostle Paul's message and uh, uh, was most probably attached to the book of Galatians. Um, the, the issue that um, caused... Uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians was that uh, Jews had come from Jerusalem and tried to infiltrate the church and change the doctrine and try to impose upon the uh, Gentile believers that they should uh, uh, go back to the law of Moses and keep the rituals and the sacrifices and so forth. And um, uh, Paul makes mention in the uh, sixth chapter of Galatians, you see what a large letter I wrote with my own hand. Well, six chapters is certainly not a large letter. It's not the biggest one that he wrote to anybody, uh, it's, it's bigger than a few, but uh, not as large or as long as, uh, uh, as some others. So uh, that indicates that there was something else attached to the letter that, um, that we might not know what it is. Uh, again, the best evidence that we have, at least the evidence that satisfies me, is that the book of Hebrews is that which was attached to it. And Paul knew that the book that what we know of is the book of Hebrews or the letter uh, written to the Hebrews would be taken back to Jerusalem. So for that reason, he wrote it as if it was a standalone letter and um when we get by the time we get to chapter 12 paul is uh has started a new section of um uh of encouragement and and really chastisement he's he's getting down on them pretty good about the fact that they have given up their uh, firm stand on things that they once knew actually i mean uh, hebrews chapter 10 verse 32 paul said uh, called remembers the former days in other words, he's saying, when you guys were first saved, what we have record up in the book of Acts, the early days in Jerusalem, in the book of Acts, when you guys first got saved, man, you hung tough. You weren't uh, you weren't concerned about persecution. You you endured that and and uh, and and stayed strong and stayed true. What happened to you? He goes on in, in verse thirty-eight of Acts of uh, Hebrews chapter ten. And he says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So he's telling them. The only way to be strong in the face of the adversity that you're experiencing, which, um, uh, which is pretty severe in the uh, city of Jerusalem, uh, the persecution against Christians I'm talking about, the only way to do that is to, to live by faith. So chapter 11 is all examples of people from every time period in the Old Testament about uh, the different dispensations in the Old Testament about people that live by faith in each and every dispensation. So in ch- by the time he gets to chapter 12, he's saying, use these people's example. You know about these people. They're part of your history. Use these examples as an inspiration for you to be strong in faith. Pick yourself up. Get back in the race. Then he talks about the chastisement of the Lord, not, de- not despising the chastisement or the discipline of the Lord. And... Um, and Paul understands that they should know how God disciplines. He talks about in chapter 12 and verse 9 about uh, fathers of the flesh who discipline in the flesh and contrast that with God who is the father of spirits. Well, if fathers of our flesh discipline us in the flesh, then how does the father of spirits discipline us? In our flesh? Through circumstance? Through tragedy? Through sickness and disease and stuff like that? No, he disciplines us through his spirit. Through our spirits. Well, how does he do that? Jesus said the words that I speak unto you, they're spirit and their life. There's only one way God disciplines his people under the new covenant, and that is by the word of God. Discipline is intended to get us back on track so that we get off the devil's territory and back under the blessings of God. Now, having said that, he then picks up in uh, chapter 12 in verse, uh, what is it, verse 12, he concludes by saying, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. In other words, he said, when you guys first got saved, you guys were living a life of praise and you praise God through the adversity. Get your hands back up and praise God again. And he says the feeble knees, the ones that used to be strong and would stand strong in the face of adversity. But now they become feeble because you've quit living by faith. Get back on track. Pick yourself up. Get back in the game. Then he goes on in verse 13 and he says, and make straight paths for your feet. Quit wandering all over everywhere as far as doctrine is concerned. Find the truth and hold fast to it. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. In other words, he's saying the only thing that can keep you out of the game is if you don't get back in it. The only thing that can keep you out of God's plan and purpose for your life is if you quit and give up. I like how one minister says it, if you're still breathing, God still has a plan for you. I think that says it all. So many times we think we've messed up to such a degree that God can't use us anymore. Folks, if you're breathing, if you got a pulse, God can use you. He still has a plan. Yeah, but I've made such a mess of things. That's what Paul is saying to them. I know you've made a mess of things, but pick yourself back up and get back in there. God's not through with you. He'll still use you. As a matter of fact, a lot of the people that he used as examples in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 were people that had made a mistake, had failed God, and then God turned around and made them even stronger and better and more effective in their the, his plan for their life afterwards. You can do the same. Now, having said that, we're going to pick up in verse 14 and start with, try to get through the rest of the 12th chapter tonight. I'm not sure if we'll do it or not, but we'll try. And he says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, why is he talking about peace? He's going to start talking with verse 14 and through the rest of the chapter about these are things that you need to know in order to run your race, which is what chapter 12 is all about. Get back in the game, run your race, look at Jesus, don't look at yourself, don't look at your failures, don't look at where you've messed up, don't look at uh, you know how you've given up and turned your back on things, accept the discipline of the Lord and get back in there. But then he says, follow peace with all men. Follow peace and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, what is he talking about? Well, folks, it's very simple. These guys have failed to a great degree. Many of them, at least, have failed to a great degree because of the persecution they've been under. Remember, before Paul got saved, he was commissioned by the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the same ones that crucified Jesus. He was commissioned by this council to go find Christians wherever they were and put them in jail or even have them killed. That hasn't stopped. These guys are not your ordinary, well, I don't want people to talk about me, Christians. They're facing some real serious stuff. They're facing violence. And so he's saying, now, I know the hardship that you're under, but you're going to have to follow after peace. Hold your finger here and turn back with me to uh, Romans chapter 12. Let me show you how Paul said it to the church in Rome who was experiencing persecution as well. Notice what he said. We'll start reading in verse 18. He said, if it be possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. And why in the world would he say if it be possible? Because it's not possible to live peaceably with everybody. It's certainly possible to try. But you can't guarantee that there's going to be a peaceful outcome in every situation and every relationship. But you do your best is what he's saying. If it be possible, live peaceably with all men. In other words, you do your part. But then he goes further. Verse 19, he says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. They've got a perfect right to avenge themselves. They could put together hit squads and go after the guys that are killing the Christians. Just like the believers in Jerusalem could. But he's saying, don't do that. If possible, live peaceably. You may not be able to live peaceably. They may not call a truce. They may come after you no matter what you do. But you do your best to follow after peace. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. In other words, don't give in to it. It's okay to be angry about the situation, but don't let it lead you into sin. But don't uh, rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So he says here's the way you are. Here's the way you operate as a Christian. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Now a lot of times we read that and we think, okay, here's the way to get back at him. We'll be good to him. That's not what he's saying. The heaping coals of fire, fire was uh if you <laughs> if you watch the the uh, reality show Survivor, fire is life. Well, that's the way it was in the ancient world. What's your they never let their fires go out. They would maintain a fire all day, all night. They would keep something going. And if the fire ever went out, you went to your best friend or your neighbor and you borrowed coals from them. And they carried them in pots on their heads. So he's saying you're providing them life. You're showing them good for the evil they're paying you. That's the point that he's making. So if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing... Thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. In other words, you're showing the life and the love of God in your actions. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now go back with me to Hebrews chapter 12. So he's saying, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. Doesn't the Bible say Jesus has been made to us peace? There are certain things that the Bible says have been imputed to us. For example, Jesus was made unto us peace. He was made unto us righteousness. He was made sin for our sakes, who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. How do you follow something you've already been made? If you've been made righteous, how do you follow righteousness? If you've been redeemed, if it's something that's already happened, how do you follow redemption? He's, see, that's not the peace he's talking about. He's not talking about the peace that you have been made. He's talking about the peaceful behavior of the Christian life. He's saying that needs to be your pursuit. Well, if you make peace to your pursuit, that means you can't make anger or vengeance your pursuit. You can't follow but one thing at a time. And especially peace and anger go different directions. So he's saying follow after peace. And he says follow after holiness. Now, the Bible says we've been made holy by the blood of Jesus. How do you follow after holiness? How do you follow after something you've been made? How do you make the pursuit of something? How do you pursue something you've already got? See, that's not what he's talking about, peace. That's not what he's talking about, holiness. He's talking about behavior. He's talking about a lifestyle. He's saying live a life of peace because you've been made, you've been brought together in peace with God through Jesus. He's saying live a holy lifestyle because you've been made holy by the blood of Jesus. And he says if you don't do that, Anybody that won't do that, anybody that won't follow peace and won't follow holiness, they're not going to see God. Now, what does that mean? Well, if he was talking about the holiness that we've been made or the peace that we've been made by the sacrifice of Jesus, we could conclude that he's saying nobody will get to heaven unless they follow after peace and holiness. But that's not the peace and holiness he's talking about. He's talking about if you want to see God here on the earth, you want to see Jesus show up in your life, you want to see the blessings of God in your life, these are going to be elements that you're going to have to incorporate in your Christian behavior, peace and holiness, even when people are trying to kill you. Bless our hearts. We're afraid people will talk bad about us. They had real life to deal with. I mean, they never knew whether the, the, the uh, uh, Jewish high priest would deliver some new edict. He had the same standing as the Pope does today. He could just proclaim all Christians were to be killed. As a matter of fact, there were several persecutions, several waves of persecutions that we see in the book of Acts. Uh, six of them, as a matter of fact, six specific waves of persecution that are identified in the book of Acts. And every time people ran for their lives, they scattered. They didn't wait to be killed. They didn't wait to be imprisoned. They went to another city. They moved. They left town. That's the reason why we find out that Aquila and Priscilla were in Ephesus. They used to be in Jerusalem, but the persecution chased them away. Folks, we're talking about real life issues here. So he said, follow after peace, a lifestyle of peace, and a lifestyle of holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Verse 15 Looking diligently, that means you have to work at it, lest any man fail of the grace of God. He mentions two things. He says, look diligently so that you don't fail of the grace of God and so that no root of bitterness springs up, uh, causes trouble, and not only defiles you, but defiles other people. Now, he's talking about the very same thing. He's talking about don't let these things get under your skin. Let's take the second one first, the root of bitterness. A root of bitterness is very simply unresolved anger. It's unforgiveness that goes sour. Ferments. My grandmother used to make homemade apple cider. Man, if that thing wasn't sealed up right, you'd you'd be expecting something sweet and it turned into vinegar. What a surprise. Same thing with milk. Milk goes bad. You ever go into the refrigerator and take a big old gulp of milk and found out it was chunky? That'll ruin your day. Well, he's saying a root of bitterness will ruin your Christian life, too. And not only will it defile you, it'll defile others. Now, why is that? Because the things that you're bitter about, you share. The things that you hold anger over, the things that you won't forgive, uh, uh, the situations that you won't forgive and show forgiveness, you tell other people about it. We all know situations where people keep reliving what happened over and over and over again. And you think, if you've never heard the story before, you think they're going to tell you something that happened last week, and it may be something that happened 10 years ago. What is that? That's a root of bitterness. And it will not only affect the individual, it'll affect those who hear the story. Because everybody likes to hear a story, don't we? We want to know the ins and outs. Now tell me what happened. Who was it? That person over there? The one praising God and acting like everything's okay? That's what he's talking about. He's saying this thing can ruin everybody. So look diligently. To operate in peace and holiness so that these things don't happen. Now let's go back to the first one now. Lest any man fail of the grace of God. Notice it didn't say the grace of God will fail you. God's grace never fails you, but you can certainly fail of the grace of God. In other words, there are a lot of things that the Bible tells us Jesus accomplished for us that you don't, have to, you don't necessarily have to take advantage of. When you're born again, the Bible says you're redeemed from the curse of the law. Well, what is the curse of the law? It says you're redeemed from spiritual death. It says you're redeemed from sickness, and it says you're redeemed from poverty. But a lot of people just stop with the spiritual death part, and as a matter of fact, they don't even take that in its entirety. They just say that's forgiveness of sins. Well, being redeemed from spiritual death is a lot more than forgiveness of sins. Being redeemed from spiritual death is what gives you authority over the devil, but not a lot of the church accepts that as truth so what are they doing they're failing of the grace of god the grace of god or the finished work of jesus has provided these things for them but they don't take advantage of them why because they don't live according to the instructions of the word paul is saying if you don't live according to the instructions i'm giving you and remember he's just told them don't despise this discipline that i'm giving you by the holy ghost accept the discipline and straighten things out because if you don't part of the discipline is follow after peace and holiness If you want to see the goodness and the blessings of God in your life. Because if you don't, then you're going to fail of the grace of God. You're going to leave things that Jesus purchased for you unreceived. You're going to leave them at the will call counter without ever taking advantage of them. He's saying that if you go further in this persecution and don't handle it according to peace and holiness, then that bitterness can spring up and destroy a lot of people not just you. Now he's going to change change directions just a little bit with verse 16. He's going to say, he says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he, Esau, would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Now what's he talking about? He's saying, don't be an Esau. Now, you can't find Paul talking about Esau to anybody else in the Gentile world. But he talks about him to the Jews. Now, why is that? The worst thing you can tell a Jew is that they're like Esau. Because Esau is the black sheep of the Jewish history. You remember the story how that uh, Abraham had Isaac, the child of promise. And Isaac, uh, through his wife, had twins. The first one that came out was Esau. He was the older. Jacob is right on his heels. He's grabbing hold and holding onto his heel as they came out. Esau, because he beat him just by seconds in being born, has the firstborn inheritance, the birthright. Now, what happened, according to the Bible story, is that Esau gave away or literally sold to his brother his birthright because he came back from hunting one day and he was hungry. And Jacob stayed at home and he was he was the cook. And so he had fixed a big pot of stew and so his brother came in, and he started smelling that stew before he ever got close. And he said, oh, I've got to have that. I'm dying. I, I mean, really, I'm, I'm wasting away to nothing here. I've got to have food. If I don't have food right now, I'm going to die. And Jacob says, well, I'd be glad to give it to you. But, you know, it just wouldn't be right for me just to hand you some. But i tell you what, I'll sell it to you. He said, I'll, anything, whatever you want. He said, I want your firstborn, the inheritance of the firstborn. I want the birthright. He said, sure, fine, whatever. Give me the stew. Now, Esau is a type of both a believer and an unbeliever. He's an Old Testament type of both a believer and an unbeliever. Certainly, the unbeliever, the person who rejects Jesus, is rejecting the eternal promise of God for something in the short term, whatever that something in the short term is. Whatever it is that keeps the unbeliever from accepting Jesus, their lifestyle, they don't want to give up this, they don't want to give up their friends, what will their family think about them? Whatever their excuse is, they've chosen something temporary, something temporal, something for the moment over an eternal promise. That's what Esau did. Now, um, let me, it's going to take a minute for me to explain this because it's really important that you see this part of it. We look at Jacob and Esau, and we think Esau's the bad guy. He wasn't. Jacob was the chiseler. Jacob was the guy that would borrow your tools. If he was your next-door neighbor, he'd borrow your tools, and then you'd find them for sale at a garage sale. He would cheat you. He would steal from you. He would do anything. He was always looking for an angle. But the Bible says, even before they were born, God said, Esau have I hated, and Jacob have I loved. Why did God love the chiseler? Why does God love the thief? That doesn't make sense to us, does it? Why in the world would God pick Jacob, who was the lousy guy, over Esau? Esau was like the captain of the football team. He was the good guy. He was the guy that was out there in the field taking care of things that need to be done. He was the man's man. Jacob's the guy in there behind his mom learning to cook. We look at Jacob and we think, oh, man, what a weasel. We look at Esau and we say, what a guy. Yeah, he's everything you'd want your son to be. But there's one difference, and that one difference is everything. And that is, Jacob, as lousy as a human being as he was, as far as his behavior was concerned, he cared about the promise that God made to his grandfather, Abraham. Now, why? I don't know. But he did. Was it because of what he heard from his dad? Maybe he heard something from his father, Isaac that Esau didn't hear? Well, that wouldn't make sense. It would make more sense that Esau would have heard things that Jacob didn't hear. Because if he's got the birthright, he's going to be the one that's going to be most instructed by his father. Not only that, but the father, Isaac. He can see the difference between these two kids. Esau was the one that Isaac loved. So if he's going to tell one of them something that he's not going to tell the other, he's certainly going to give the information to Esau. But Jacob cared about the promise. Esau didn't care about eternity he didn't care about the promise that was made to Abraham and maybe that had something to do because he was capable in and of of himself maybe it was that he was such a tough guy maybe it was that he was self-sufficient maybe it was because he things came easy to him everybody liked him maybe that contributed to the fact that he only cared about the here and now I'll take care of things on my own I really don't need my granddaddy's promise but it was that care and concern, that respect for the promise of God that made all the difference between Jacob and Esau. Now, what happened? After Esau sold the birthright and got his belly full, instantly he wanted to go back on the promise. He wanted to renege on the on what he had offered Jacob. He wanted that birthright back, and Jacob wouldn't do it. Jacob wouldn't do it. He cared about it. He wanted it. and So Esau wanted to kill him, wanted to do away with him. When the time came for his father to bless them, and that was a supernatural thing too, you remember Jacob deceived his father by putting on animal hair and skins and stuff like that and tried to make himself smell like Esau because his father's eyesight had gone bad by then. And so he deceived, his, with the help of his mother, he deceived his father. And so his father gave the blessing of the firstborn to Jacob, even though he didn't, didn't earn it by birth. When Esau finally comes back in a little bit later, he's prepared this great feast for his father. He's gone out and he's killed a deer or or whatever it was, and he's prepared it just so perfectly, and he brings it into his father, made it just the way his father likes, and his dad says, what are you doing here? You were just here. He says, I've been out in the field. What are you talking about? I just got back from hunting. And and Isaac says, oh, no, your brother deceived me. Here's Esau one more time, that lousy so-and-so. But the promise had been made. The blessing had been given. And nothing Esau could do to, could, would take it back. Now, folks, we've talked about to a, a little degree, not, not in great detail, but we've talked a little about how God supersedes the, the firstborn birthright in other situations. For example, the, the birthright contained three things. It contained the rulership of the family. That's what was passed on to the firstborn. It contained the priesthood position of the family. That was passed on to the firstborn. And then the third thing was, um, what did I say, Uh, rulership, priesthood. And the third thing is the double portion, the double portion inheritance. Well, Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob's, but he didn't get the firstborn birth. uh, He didn't get the birthright. He didn't get the blessing. uh, Joseph did. Joseph became the ruler of the family. Joseph became the one that stood as priest of the family. And Joseph got the double portion blessing in that both of his sons became one, become became heads of tribes of the tribes of Israel. So Joseph got a double portion because his two sons took his one portion. You see, understand what I mean by that? So God supersedes that. It's not always the firstborn that got it. When Jacob was blessing Joseph's two sons. Joseph set them up in such a way that uh, Jacob's right hand would go on the oldest, Manasseh, and his youngest, Ephraim, would be would get the, the younger portion blessing. But Jacob crossed his hands. He was inspired by the Holy Ghost to cross his hands. And so he gave Ephraim the firstborn blessing instead of Manasseh. And there are other times that this happened spiritually. You remember the story of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah didn't have any children. He was a prophet of God, didn't have any children. God instructed him to to choose Elisha to take his place when the time came. And so for several years, Elijah and Elisha were ministering together. Elisha was his assistant. He was his right-hand man. When the time came, Elisha asked for a double portion of the anointing that was on Elijah. Well, that's not a natural blessing that he's asking for. He's asking for part of the, the uh the kingdom of God blessing that was on Elijah. And so what did Elijah do? Elijah said, If you see me go when I'm when I'm taken up into heaven, then you can have it. But you really don't know what you're asking for. And so what happened when the chariot came down from heaven? Elisha speaks and says, My father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. See, it was a spiritual connection. There was a spiritual relationship. And, folks, the firstborn blessing is always based on a relationship. We look at it, and it's described in Scripture, as the first one that comes out of the womb. But it's not just that. It's a relationship. That's why the relationship that Jacob had with his father superseded the relationship that Esau had with his father because of the respect of the promise. Now, folks, relationship is everything with God. Everything. Christianity is a relationship. There is no other religion on the face of the earth. There is no other philosophy on the face of the earth that offers you a relationship. Everything else is rules. Everything else is do this and and then you'll get that or some promise will come to pass or paradise or 72 virgins or whatever, you know. Whatever goofy thing some other religions come up with. Christianity is the only thing that involves a relationship. It's the only thing. Everything else tries to mimic it as far as the blessings are concerned or the results thereof. The results of obedience. But Christianity is the only thing that comes as a result of relationship. Now, you can find a lot of people that have moral standing, maybe even greater moral standing than some Christians that we see living their lives. Mormons are a good example of this. You're not going to find more moral people than Mormons, but they have no relationship with God. Jesus is not a big thing to them because they're living moral lives. And because they are living moral lives and their actions of morality and the way that they live their lives brings a natural success to them. So what do they need Jesus for? See, they don't know anything about a relationship with God. They're not trying to gain a relationship with God. They're trying to gain access into a greater level of heaven through their own works. So they don't need Jesus. But folks, i got to tell you, there's a lot of Mormons I'd rather be friends with than some Christians. Because of the way they live their lives. And we judge things like that. We look at people by their outward appearance and the way that they live and we think, oh, they're good people. Well, they may be good people from the way that they're living, but they may be on their way to hell because of it. Other religions have other codes. Not necessarily a moral code. Islam has an extreme code of conduct. I, you may have seen uh, just, uh, what was it, yesterday or the day before, when the Iranian president went to uh, Hugo Chavez's funeral, and now he's in hot water because he was comforting the, the widow, and he made contact with her. She put her head on his shoulder or something like that. Well, that's forbidden under the Islamic law. Well, it's not a moral code of conduct they have, but it's a very strict code of conduct. and And they think... Muslims think that because of their strict code of conduct and their following of the Koran, following the rules and the regulations and so forth, that that's going to bring them some special place in paradise. Well, good luck with that. Because the only thing to get you into heaven is a relationship with Jesus, whether they think so or not. And so we see all kinds of different religions, all kinds of different philosophies that are based on codes of conduct, in some cases moral codes of conduct, But if it's not based on a relationship, there's nothing there. Now, the reason I went into that detail is because I want you to understand something. Skip down with me. We'll read this a little bit later in the service. But I want you to skip down with me, uh, kind of get a head start on this. Notice it says in verse 22, it says, But you're coming to Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn." Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn of Abraham's descendants. Not naturally. Certainly not naturally. Isaac was, well, Ishmael was his first literal child. Isaac was the firstborn of promise. But Jesus is called the church, the the firstborn. He was the firstborn of God. He was the first begotten from the dead. He is the firstborn. What does that mean? That means Jesus has rulership over the kingdom of God. He is the priest of the kingdom of God, and he has the double portion blessing. And the Bible says that what are we? We are kings, we are priests, and we are joint heirs. Why? Because we're in Christ. See, Jesus is in the firstborn, and you're the thousandth born. You're in Christ, which makes you joint heirs with the firstborn. That's why this is important. And so when Paul says, don't let bitterness, don't let anger, don't let the things that are coming against you cause you to be like Esau. That's the worst slam you can give a Jew. You're like Esau. Well, what does that mean? To them, it says they've turned their back on heavenly things for the sake of natural things. Now that may be the way they're living, but they don't, nobody wants to admit that that's the case. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to Christians. We certainly know that's true of the unsaved. They've chosen natural things over spiritual things. But he's saying even after you're born again, you can do the same thing. Don't make that mistake. See where he's going? Then he talks about a comparison or a contrast between Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. Let's start in verse 18. He says, for you are not, and this all goes back to follow after peace and holiness. For you are not coming to Mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor under blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they were, they that heard, entreated that the word of God should not be spoken unto them more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. He's talking about Mount Sinai. This is when God gave Moses the law. Now, what was the purpose for the law? The purpose for the law, really, there were two purposes. Uh, Well, let me say it this way. What was the purpose of the commandments? Uh, I'm sorry. What was the purpose of the old covenant with its laws and sacrifices? The old covenant was made up of two things, laws and sacrifices. The laws had one purpose, and that was to show you you are a sinner. God gave you gave them a set of rules. He said to the children of Israel, can you follow my commandments? They said, yeah, no problem. He said, "Okay, here's 10. They couldn't keep 10. There were 630 in all, but they couldn't keep 10. And so the law was for one purpose, and that was to show you that you were a sinner. You couldn't do it on your own. That's the whole purpose and the whole reason for the law. Anybody that thought they were going to earn their way into God's favor by keeping the law found out it was impossible. And so what the Jews did then and even now, but certainly in Paul's day when he was writing this, is they continued to try to keep the law, try to keep the law, try to keep the law, try to keep the law. It's like... The, the the further they tried to get themselves out of their debt with God, the deeper they dug themselves in the hole. The more they tried, the further away from God they got. So the law was intended to show you that you're a sinner. The sacrifices were, show, were intended to show you that you needed a Redeemer. In other words, you can't work yourself out of debt spiritually. Now, you can work yourself out of debt naturally, but you can't work yourself out of debt spiritually. There's only one way that you can be relieved from debt spiritually, and that is for a benefactor to come in and pay the debt and remove it once and for all, and that's what Jesus did. And that's what the sacrifices were intended to show, that there could be a substitute to take away the debt that you owe to God. But what about Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai was where the law was given. Now, Mount Sinai was not a a, a hip-hip-hooray time for Israel. They were down at the foot of the mountain scared out of their wits. Moses is up on the mountain, and you remember they went to Aaron and said, nobody could live through this. The lightnings and the thunders and all this other kind of stuff that's going on, the the black smoke and the the tempest, the the wind, the whirlwind type thing that's going on up there, nobody could live through that. You're going to have to make us a golden calf. Well, of course, everybody knows that the, the answer for thunder and lightning and tempest and blackness and smoke and stuff is a golden calf. I mean, naturally, sure. What are they thinking? God's a terrible God up there, so let's make an idol that's not the god that's up there it's not a calf that's flying around in the air what are they making a golden calf for they're reverting back to their history in egypt but everybody what israel was commanded nobody touches the mountain if an animal wanders up and within the boundary then they're to be killed nobody touches this mountain it even goes further i think we stopped reading before we got there it says yeah verse 21 It says, and it was so terrible, so terrible was the sight, that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Moses is up there and his knees are knocking. He's thinking, man, I've never seen anything like this. God, it wasn't like this when you talked to me out of the burning bush. What in the world is going on? Everything that's mentioned there, the thunder, the lightnings, the fire, the smoke, the blackness, the tempest, all the things that are mentioned there are elements of death. Folks, the delivery of the law was not the glory of God shining through, where God was saying, you're my people, I love you so much. It was a manifestation of death. Keep it or else. Now, it wasn't that God was trying to bring judgment on the people. He knew they couldn't keep it, but he had to teach them they couldn't keep it. And so everything about the law was related to death. That's why this was such a terrible, terrible thing. And the voice that they heard from heaven up there when God was speaking, they heard rumblings and thunders and and, and stuff like that down below. And they said, stop this. We can't take any more. We can't handle this anymore. Moses or God, somebody make this stop. We can't handle this any longer. Now, that's important because of what Paul is going to say later on in the chapter. He's going to talk about the voice that they heard then and the voice that we hear now. But everything was about death. It was about, oh, my goodness, we're about to die. Everything is going to be done away with. Aaron, you've got to help us out here. So they came up with the idea of the golden calf. Who knows? That's not the place that we've come to. And that's the example now, the contrast that Paul's making. He said, you're not come to Mount Sinai. You're not come to the place of death. You're not come where it was a a frightening thing, where it was do this and don't do that. And remember, that's the whole thing that the Jews from uh, the uh, Jewish leaders from in Jerusalem are trying to impose on the Gentile churches and upon the church in, in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem. You've got to keep the law. Paul is saying, why would you want to keep something that's death? In Acts 15, in the council at Jerusalem, Peter stands up and he says to those that that are trying to impose the the keeping of the law and and circumcision and all that kind of stuff, he says, why would you impose on on the church, impose upon the Gentiles, stuff that neither we or our forefathers are able to keep? Why do we want to hang on to this? It's never worked for anybody. That's his point. So where have we come instead? Verse 22. But you're coming to Mount Zion and into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now, here's the thing about Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion. Mount Sinai was on the backside of the desert. Mount Sinai was the place where God first talked to Moses out of the burning bush. Where was Moses when that happened? On the backside of the desert. Now, folks, I'm not exactly sure what the backside of the desert is, but it's got to be a bad place. Backside of the desert indicates that it's the worst possible place in the desert, I guess. What else could it mean? So it's a a bad place. It's a place where nobody else lives. Moses is out there tending sheep in the backside of the desert. Gee, I bet that was fun and prosperous. Must be a lot of stuff for the sheep to eat in the backside of the desert, don't you think? So when the time comes, God leads them back to Mount Sinai where he delivers this death. Now Moses, he's used to being in the presence of God. He was in the presence of God when he was on Mount Sinai the first time when God spoke to him out of the burning bush. Moses was afraid and God said, take your shoes off, this is holy ground. Well, why is it holy ground? Because it's a place where God talked to his people. But it's outside of any city, it's outside of any territory that God wanted his people to dwell in. Mount Sinai is in Turkey. They found it. The country of Turkey won't let anybody in there, but there have been videos and things like that have been smuggled out. You can see where the uh, Google Earth will show you that this mountain has been burned in such a way that it's it's different from any of the other terrain there. There's a ring, a, a, a border, a stone border around the bottom that they use to keep out anybody from getting up on the mountain, just like the Bible says that they did. It's there. You can see it. But see, it's outside the city. Now, here's the thing. How many times did we see in chapter 11 where it talked about people that were involved with or looking for a city? Paul hadn't changed subjects. The cities that he was talking about in Hebrews chapter 11 is the city he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 12. Moses said was uh, it was said that moses was determined to be a child of the city it says that he was a proper child in the king james but it literally means a child of the city in other words there was a divine something about him there was something that his parents saw in him that they recognized this guy's got a divine destiny abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was god well what city is he looking for he certainly didn't find any natural city like that because he never settled down he lived in tents all of his life Over and over and over again, it talks about people that were looking for a city. Well, what city is that? It's the heavenly city. Mount Sinai was outside of any city limits. Jesus was crucified outside the city. He was crucified on Golgotha. Why? Because it's outside the city. But you're come under Mount Zion. Now, what is Mount Zion? Mount Zion is the place where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice, and God stopped him. Now, do you remember what Abraham said about this experience? When Isaac, they were going up on the mountain and Isaac said, Dad, we got everything we need except the lamb. We don't have a sacrifice. What are we going to do about a sacrifice? What are we killing? And Abraham answered and said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Now, whether he knew he was speaking prophetically or not, we don't know. But certainly he was speaking prophetically that God will provide himself, meaning Jesus, who is part of the Godhead, as the sacrifice for mankind. Whether he knew that, I don't know. Sure makes for good reading, though, doesn't it? But he's literally saying God will provide himself a sacrifice. The the place that we know of as Mount Zion is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, that's where they built the temple. They did not build a temple somewhere and then the Spirit of God or the, the presence of God moved in. They built the temple where the presence of God was. When David became king of Israel... He settled in Jerusalem and built the original walls around the city. The original walls around the city, you can look at it today, there's an inner wall and an outer wall. It's the, the inner wall is around the old city, what's known as the old city. The old city contains the Temple Mount and a couple of surrounding streets. And that's all there was to the city of Jerusalem when David was king. But it encompassed the Temple Mount. Why? Because that's the place where the presence of God was. That's where David wanted the city to include. He wanted a city where God dwelt. Now Jerusalem, old city of Jerusalem, was a type of the heavens, heavenly city of Jerusalem that we know of now. And I'll show you. I'll prove that to you as well. You're not come unto Mount uh, Sinai. You're coming to Mount Zion. Hold your finger here and turn back with me to Galatians chapter 4. Remember I talked to you about Esau and and, uh, Jacob a little bit ago? I told you that he spoke to, Paul spoke to, uh, or the author spoke to um, the Jews about Esau because they know about him. The Gentiles don't know about Esau. Paul would have to start from scratch and say, well, here's the story of Esau and Jacob and so forth. They didn't know about that. But you know what the Gentiles did know about? The Gentiles, the whole world at that time, knew about Isaac and Ishmael. Everybody knew about that. By the way, let me ask you a question. Who are the children of Esau? Anybody know? Anybody know? I guarantee you anybody that does know is either a real studious person where it comes to the Bible or they just happen to hear somebody that is a real studious person to the Bible. Because the point is, we know of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was supposed to be or it could have been as far as birthright was concerned, Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Genesis chapter 36 says Esau is the father of the Edomites. You know who the Edomites are? They're prophesied against by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Malachi that they would be wiped out. They refused to let Israel come through their land when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. Even though they were kin, even though they were cousins, they refused them passage. And God said, don't destroy them, I'll take care of them later. God prophesied three different times that the Edomites, Esau's descendants, would be wiped out. Their land would be a wasteland and never be built on again. Not really a good end to the story. Why? It all went back to Esau's lack of respect for the heavenly promise. Everybody, however, didn't know about that. The Jews did, but not everybody else. Just like I don't know anything about British heritage. I know a little bit about American history and American heritage. But you know about what you've been taught and you know about your own people. But you don't know anything about anybody else. So Paul's not going to talk to the Gentiles about Jewish history. But everybody knows about Isaac and Ishmael because Ishmael was the father of the Arabs. And the Arabs were a big deal even in that day. The Arabs versus the Jews were in conflict even in those days. So Paul is going to use, when he's talking to the Gentiles, Galatians, the other part of the letter that's attached. He's going to talk to them about something that they can relate to. And notice the example that he gives Galatians chapter 4, let's start reading in verse uh, 22. It says, for it is written, well, back to verse 21. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. He's talking about Hagar, who was the mother of Ishmael, that was... Uh, um, Sarah's handmaid that she gave Abraham to have a child. She was trying to help things along. Didn't work out real well. But Isaac was the child of promise. Which things, verse 24, which things Isaac and uh, uh, Ishmael are an allegory or an illustration? For these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. That's uh, Hagar is the the source of that. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. In other words, he's saying... Uh, Mount Sinai is represented by Hagar, which is that which engendered death, that which engendered the law, that which engendered bondage. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Jerusalem and Antrith to Jerusalem, which is which now is and is in bondage with her children. So, Antrith means corresponds to. So it's saying Hagar in Mount Sinai corresponds now to Jerusalem. Where the Jews are still trying to keep people in the bondage to the law. Now, folks, that's really contrary to what most Christians think. Most Christians have the idea that Jerusalem is the heavenly place. It's not. It's a place of death. You look at politically and, and historically and what's happened in Jerusalem. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Israel. I love Jerusalem. But there ain't there is nothing there to see. Well the trip we made to, to uh, the last trip we made has been a number of years ago now. We went to Egypt, we went to Jordan, and we went to Israel. We went to Egypt first, and man, everything was about pyramids and tombs and everything, and everything is so big, and it's like, wow. And the first timers, people had never been to Israel before. They went around Egypt and they said, Oh man, if this is this good, Israel is going to be great. Then you get to Israel and you find out it's about that big. And there's nothing there. The tour guide takes you around. He says, That valley is where David killed Goliath. Right over here is where, uh, Sarah's buried. And, uh, up there on the hill right there, that's where Jesus preached on the Mount of Beatitudes. And you can throw a rock and hit all three. I mean, there, there's no, there's no bigness to it. There's no, there's no outward show. And, and boy, when we first got to Israel, first day we were in Israel, I looked around that group, the whole group is just sitting there. It's like, you gotta be kidding. Man. We really liked Egypt. Egypt was a lot of stuff to see. Well, folks, that's the whole point. Egypt is about the outward appearance, but everything's dedicated to death. The tombs are all about pharaohs that died. The sphinx and the, 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 the uh, pyramids and all that kind of stuff. It's all about people that died. It's a monument to death. The nation, of Israel, or the nation of Egypt is a monument to death. It's sand and a monument to death. That's it. That's all that's there. Even the Nile River, the famous Nile River, the Rio Grande makes it look like a, uh, you know, the Rio Grande looks better than the Nile in most places. I mean, it's it's just a monument to death. But Israel, Israel is not something to see. Israel gets inside of you after a few days. After a few days, it's kind of like, boy, something's happening to me inside here. Because it's a place of promise. It's a place where God originally made promises to his people. But see, from the outside, we look at Jerusalem, we think, oh, Jerusalem, the holy city. Well, folks, look at what the holy city is. The holy city is a place of conflict. It's a place where Islam, it's not the the headquarters of Islam, but it's the place where Islam declares war on every other religion. That's what the Temple Mount is all about. That's what about these Al Mosques and whatever the names of them are and all that kind of stuff. It's all about declaring war and trying to dominate every other religion. And Judaism, boy, Judaism is in full force there. You see all these guys with the ringlets and the big hats and all this kind of stuff, and they're doing their nodding and all this stuff at the Wailing Wall. If you've never been there, it's a real eye-opening experience because you expect to go and say, okay, the Wailing Wall, we've heard so much about it, it's going to be a real holy place. There's really going to be a presence of God there. There's nothing there. There's no presence of God there. God's not in the wailing wall. The only presence of God there is, is whatever Christians go to the wailing wall and that they take him with him. But see, we see it the other way around. We look at Jerusalem as being, oh, it's some holy place because it's the place where God is. It's not the place where God is, folks. He's not there, except in the hearts of believers. And those are few and far between. So Paul says, Jerusalem corresponds to Mount Sinai. Not to Mount Zion. Not anymore. Well, then what corresponds to Mount Zion? Let's keep reading here. Uh, Verse 25. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers or corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. In other words, the present day Jerusalem that Paul is writing. And is in bondage with her children through Judaism. Bondage to the law. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free. And is the mother of us all. In other words, he's saying, the city of God is known the earth now. The people of God are, but not the city of God. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not, for the desolate has many more children than she which has a husband. He's talking about Christianity and the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. He's saying, Christianity, the family of God, has people and children all over the world, not Judaism. Judaism is centralized in Israel, specifically Jerusalem. At least it was in their day. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Verse 28. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. And that's exactly what was happening in their day. The Jews were persecuting the Christians. They were imprisoning them, putting them to death if they could. The Sanhedrin was in full force trying to eradicate Christianity. When they found out they couldn't stomp it out altogether, they tried to infiltrate it and incorporate Christianity into Judaism and make people keep the law. And that's everything that's going on here, and that's why Paul is answering the whole issue of Judaism versus Christianity to both the Gentiles in the letter to the Galatians and Hebrews, the, the Jews in the letter that we know of as the Hebrews. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Paul is saying, Get rid of Judaism. I'm sure that was a real blessing to the Jews in Jerusalem. Paul is saying there is no compromise here, there is no incorporation, there is no add to with their rituals and sacrifices. Cast out the bondwoman, which represent, is represented by the present day Jerusalem. Get rid of the law. And her son, for the son of the bondwoman, shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Back to Hebrews 12. But you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Notice where he says our fellowship is. Our fellowship is with the city of the living God. You've got a place in the city, the New Jerusalem. He says our second uh, fellowship is with an innumerable company of angels. Now, why in the world would Paul include? And, and I, I hope you can see by going back and forth to Galatians, from Hebrews to Galatians, that's why we say the best evidence is that Paul is the author of both and these letters were attached together. Because he talks about the same things just in different, from different perspectives, one from a Gentile perspective, the other from a Jewish perspective. Why in the world would Paul tell us as Christians, or them as Christians, us too, why would he say that we are come unto an innumerable company of angels if the angels don't have some part in our Christian life? Folks, angels are supposed to be a lot more of a part of our Christian life than we give them place. What else are we come to? What else are we to have fellowship with? Verse 23, to the general assembly and, and means something else, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. What does that mean? That means we have fellowship with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as it is spread throughout the world, fellowship with other believers, wherever they may be, but we also have fellowship with the general assembly. In other words, he's saying you are come to the local church and to the church at large. Now, folks, you can understand, this is why Paul said in Hebrews chapter 10, knowing that these Christians are are facing persecution. That's why he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We think of it in in a Western mindset, be faithful and go to church. These guys didn't have any choice. You get pulled away and out of fellowship with other people, you're not going to be strong enough to face the persecution that you're going to find this week. We take so much for granted when we read the Bible because we don't put it in context and realize the people that he's writing to. He's saying, look, I know people are trying to kill you. I know the Jews are devising plans to do, do you in. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Strengthen one another. Encourage one another in the things of God. Now, folks, the same principle applies, even though we don't live in a persecuted society. I think we'll see some of that change the, more, the further and further we go and the closer we get to the end. But the same principle applies. If you're going to have strength for your weak, you're going to need to be in church so that you can fellowship around the things of God and with other believers who can encourage you. Now, I'll be the first to admit, the Western world has turned church into a social event instead of a spiritual event. And there's only one thing that can change that, and that's the presence of God. That's why we're looking for the glory of God in the last days. There's only one thing that's going to wake up the church who is the Western world, at least the Western church, which is by and large asleep. And that is the presence of God. It's the only thing that can do it. We've had outstanding preachers throughout the church history. If they couldn't wake people up, then it's going to take something more than preaching. It's going to take something more than right doctrine. Thank God for the privilege that we have to know right doctrine. But it's got to take more than that. It's going to take the presence of God. So he said, you're come to all these things and should have fellowship in all these ways. You're come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all. Notice he calls him the judge. Notice he doesn't call him God the blesser of all. God the judge of all, and, of, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The word perfect is the word complete. Doesn't mean without flaw, it means made complete in Christ. And to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Abel is big for the Jews because he was a righteous man and he was killed. He was the first martyr. He was killed for his faith in God. He's saying the blood of Jesus is better than anything you guys think about Abel and his blood being shed. Verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. Remember we read about Mount Sinai where the people covered their ears and they said, we can't take any more. don't say anything else. Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Let me remind you how Paul started this letter. Verse 1, chapter 1, God who at sundry times, means time periods, at different time periods in diverse manners, different ways, spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. But he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. That's what he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. Don't be like those that covered their ears and said, we can't hear anymore what he's commanding us from Mount Sinai because you're not come to Mount Sinai. You're come to Mount Zion. And in Mount Zion, that's where Jesus speaks to us. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Now, when he's talking about turning away, he's saying listening to judaism and the law of moses instead of christianity and the gospel that he's preaching don't turn away whose voice then shook the earth but now he has promised saying yet once more i will shake not only the earth but also heaven that's uh, haggai chapter 2 and verse 6 the next several verses if you come to prayer school uh ever then you'll know that uh, that we quote Haggai chapter 2 verses 7 through 9 a lot where it says yet a little while and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. Verse 6 talks about Jesus coming the first time. Verses 7 through 9 talk about him coming again. When he says I will shake the earth and the heavens he said I did that. Paul makes that point. Next verse he says and this word in other words where he said yet once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, he's saying when he sent Jesus, he shook everything that could be shaken so that the things that could be shaken would pass away. What things passed away that he's talking about? The law of Moses. He's saying the reason he sent Jesus, the reason he raised Jesus from the dead, the reason he's dealing with us under a new covenant dispensation, which is different than anything they've experienced under the old covenant, was for one purpose and that is to do away with everything else so that jesus is the only thing standing the only thing that's going to be left is that which cannot be shaken now he's going to tell us a little bit about what can't be shaken he's going to define what that is verse 28 wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved the kingdom of god can't be shaken the kingdom of the jews certainly can and was And as a result, as far as God was concerned, at least, passed away, was done away with. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. That's a real bad translation. It says, let us not be shaken too. He's talking about things that can't be shaken. The kingdom of God can't be shaken. And those who are established in the truth of the word can't be shaken either. Let us have grace or let us also be unmoved whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, who's he a consuming fire of? Who's he saying God's going to consume? Our God is a consuming fire. Everybody talks about that from the standpoint of judgment. What's God consuming? See, this comes back to the discipline of God. you got people on both sides of the fence here. You've got some people who say God never disciplines. you got other people saying everything that happens, whether it's good or bad, is God doing it. Well, which is right? Neither one. Most of the things that happen to us, whether they're good or bad, have more to do with what we do in life, our actions, than it has to do with God or even the devil. God's certainly not in the process of bringing tragedy into our lives to discipline us. He disciplines us through His Word. But He does discipline us through His Word. The other side of this is God never disciplines. That's an excuse, that's code word for saying, I'm not going to listen to what the Bible says. And we've gotten way too many Christians that are in that category. They're living the lives they want to live and ignoring what the Bible says, saying, I'm under grace. Paul said, don't let your freedom in Christ be a liberty to sin. In other words, the grace of God was not ever given to you so that you could live the way you wanted to. The word of God is given to be your guide so that you can walk and operate in the grace of God so that you can avoid further discipline, whether it's through the word of God or you get off into the devil's territory and then he takes you apart. And that's what discipline, the Word of God, and the discipline of the Word is all about. It's God trying to keep you from getting over into the devil's territory where you're an easy target. So how in the world is God a consuming fire? What is God consuming? God very simply consumed everything that could be shaken, specifically the Old Covenant. God wiped it out. It's not a problem anymore because as far as God's concerned, it doesn't exist that's the consuming fire. God, through the work of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, consumed everything from every dispensation from Adam until Jesus. And now all that's left is the voice of his son. You remember when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River? The voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Orient, who am I Well pleased? On the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Because Peter wants to build tabernacles. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are all standing there and they're all transfigured. And Moses says, Hey, let's build three tabernacles. What's he saying? He's saying, Let's make them equal. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Let's make these equal. Why? Because the law and the prophets were still in effect. That's why the voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Forget about the other guys. They're just messengers. It's Jesus and Jesus only. See the point? For our God is a consuming fire. God has consumed everything except the gospel of Jesus. So what are we looking to to try to please God for? You know why 1 John 1-9 is in the Bible? Because of the grace of God. Because, number one, only the priest could go to God for forgiveness of sins. Only the priest. Now, when you got saved, you went to God as a sinner with Jesus, your high priest. And you went to God imploring for your sins to be removed. But now that you're born again, you are a priest unto God yourself. So you go as a priest. Not as a sinner, saying, Father, just like I couldn't do anything about my sins as a sinner, I now can't do anything about my sins in and of myself. But thank God the blood of Jesus covered me then, and the blood of Jesus covers me now. So that you can be a king, a priest, and a joint heir. In Christ means you have the inheritance of the firstborn. You have authority over the devil. That's what it means to be a king. You are a priest unto God. You don't need to go to anybody else or through anybody else because you're in Christ. You have direct access to God. And as a joint heir, that means everything that belonged to Jesus then and now, then meaning on the earth or now at the right hand of the Father is yours. Well, I went a little bit longer than I wanted to, but at least we finished chapter 12. We've got one chapter left to go. I'm not sure if I can cover it all in one time, but uh, we'll give it a shot. Why don't we all stand? Folks, we've got a lot of things to be thankful for. Do you realize that if you were under the law, you'd have a calendar with days marked when you had to do this and when you had to do that and when the sacrifice was going to have to be made and all that other kind of stuff. Thank God you don't have to do any of that stuff. Thank God we can just freely say Father in heaven and go to Him. We don't have to have a high priest to go in the middle of the, the temple for us. We don't have to have anybody to, to, to operate on our behalf or as our representative. You can represent yourself because you are in Christ. Folks, it's important that you realize you're not just a child of God. You're really in Christ. In Christ means you're not a standalone child. It means you're in His only begotten Son. That means when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see another one of his children. He sees you in Christ. Over 65 times in the New Testament, it talks about how that we are in Christ. Paul coins the term in Christ. Why? Because you're not somebody that's just going to heaven. You're not somebody that's just a member of God's family. You are in Christ. Meaning God sees Jesus when he sees you. Because everything Jesus did, he did for you and me. we got a lot of things to be thankful for. Let's just lift our hands and worship him for just a moment. Father, we worship you and magnify your name. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that we have come to the church of the firstborn. And because we are in you, all that you have and all that you accomplished was for our behalf. You've made us rulers, kings, and priests. We have authority over the devil. We have authority in our own lives. We can come directly to you, Father, in the name of Jesus. We don't have to be represented by anybody else. Jesus is our representative. Nothing keeps us out. Not even our own wrongdoing. Because when you see us, you see your son. Thank you, Father, that we're joint heirs with Christ. His inheritance is ours. Accessed by faith. Lord, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to do it ourselves. Forgive us for trying to gain something that we already have. Forgive us for trying to work our way into a place that you have already given us in Christ. We love you, Father. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us.